Today's episode is brought to you by Betsy Bonner's The Book of Atlantis Black, which Amanda Fortini calls as haunting, as memorable, and as magnetic as the tragic young woman at its core. The book is both memoir and true crime account, the story of Bonner's search for her sister, Atlantis, and the unraveling of the mysterious final months before Atlantis's disappearance, alleged overdose, and death. Amy Hempel calls the book both maddening and fascinating, and Domenica Ruta adds, Betsy Bonner writes with the precision of a poet and the courage of a survivor. I could not put this book down. The Book of Atlantis Black is out on August 4th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. While preparing for my interview with Joe Sacco about his latest book, Paying the Land, questions about land and property and borders were already on my mind. Even more so since we talked, since the federal government, against the will of every state and city politician in Oregon, has occupied a section of downtown Portland. A lot of protests have focused around and on the symbols of the ways property is claimed. A fence was erected around the federal building, which was breached and torn down and climbed over by protesters. The feds then spent a lot of money on building a much, much sturdier and imposing fence around the building. And the city of Portland has, in turn, focusing again on the fence, fined the federal government $500 for every 15 minutes that this new fence illegally blocks one of the bike lanes on the street. Consciously or unconsciously, people have responded to the border Trump has erected in Portland with walls of moms and walls of dads with leaf blowers and walls of vets and nurses and teachers and union members, walls of ordinary people lining up along the fence. Of course, on the most superficial level, this raises questions of who has jurisdiction over a given piece of property or over a city. But all of this is also happening on stolen land, hidden in plain sight in the same area where the protests are happening each night, was a statue of a pioneer family that's been long-standing in Portland, a statue of a father, mother, and child called the Promised Land, a promised land that was promised explicitly for white people. I bring this all up because the subtext of my conversation with Joe Sacco that underlies most everything we talk about is the profoundly different orientation to the land and ideas of property and ownership among the Diné people of the Northwest Territories. We don't explicitly talk about the difficult conundrum of negotiating with the Canadian government to assert Aboriginal rights over colonized land when, at the same time, traditional Diné values do not believe in land ownership or in the idea that a person can own land at all. But this conundrum underlies everything we do talk about, and it informs the way he draws certain pages of the book versus others, some with frames and borders and others more open and capacious. And he even tells the story of a Canadian government negotiator who is so struck both by the Aboriginal orientation to land and also the gap between that orientation and the bureaucratic challenges and hurdles to asserting sovereignty over their traditional territories, that he switches sides and negotiates along with and on behalf of the Diné. 
Joe's addition to the bonus audio archive also touches on this. He chooses to discuss a short passage from Jean-Jacques Rousseau's The Discourse on the Origin of Inequality in relation to his own book, Paying the Land, and the Diné people's traditional relationship to the land. This joins a lot of other interesting politically-oriented bonus audio, from N.K. Jemison's reading From the Death and Life of Great American Cities, to Ted Chang pondering on the real reasons Silicon Valley fears superintelligent artificial intelligence. You can find out more about how to subscribe to the bonus audio at patreon.com slash between the covers and see the other gifts and incentives and content available to people who become supporters of the show. People do reach out periodically asking when any spots are expected to open up in the Tin House Early Reader Program, where you receive 12 books in three shipments over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. And it just so happens that now there are a couple spots open. Again, you can check this all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program with Joe Sacco. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Joe Sacco, is one of the world's great contemporary cartoonists and widely considered the creator of war-reportage comics journalism. Joe Sacco was born in Malta, raised in Australia, and earned a degree in journalism from the University of Oregon. He is probably best known for his book, Palestine, which won the American Book Award and which Edward Said described by saying... With the exception of one or two novelists and poets, no one has ever rendered this terrible state of affairs better than Joe Sacco. His book, Safe Area Garazda, about the Bosnian War, centered around a small Muslim enclave in the city of Garazda, won Joe Sacco the Eisner Award for Best Original Graphic Novel, was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and Best Comic Book of 2000 by Time Magazine. After its publication, Sacco was named a Guggenheim Fellow, went on to produce The Fixer and War's End, both about the Bosnian War, and footnotes in Gaza that investigated two forgotten massacres of Palestinians in the 1950s, and which won the Rittenhauer Book Prize and the Oregon Book Award. In collaboration with the journalist Chris Hedges, Sacco co-authored Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, which chronicles poverty in the United States life in quote-unquote sacrifice zones, 
places like the coal mines of West Virginia, where both natural resources and people are used, abused, and discarded by corporate capital. Sacco also has done many shorter pieces on assignment for places like Harper's Magazine, The Guardian, and The New York Times about the Iraq War, about Chechnyan women in the Chechnyan War, about refugees from Africa trying to reach Malta and other locales in the EU, and the struggles of the Dalits, the caste that was used to be pejoratively called the Untouchables in the province of Uttar Pradesh, India. Many of these shorter pieces are collected in his book, Journalism. Joe Sacco also created a wordless 24-foot-long panorama of the first day of the Battle of the Somme, launched on July 1st, 1916, that produced more than a million casualties by the end of the offensive. This work became a 16-page accordion-fold booklet called The Great War and was also recreated on the walls of the Paris Metro. Joe Sacco is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his much-anticipated new book, Paying the Land, just out from Metropolitan Books. With starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Library Journal, Chris Barsanti for the Star Tribune says, It has been more than 10 years since Joe Sacco has produced a full-length work. Not to suggest that one of our greatest living graphic journalists should make a habit of taking that much time off, but the wait has been worth it. Paying the Land is an immersive exploration of the Northwest Territory's native Diné people that casts its net across a broad panoply of topics while still hewing to the granular details that make Sacco's work so rewarding. Ida Edamarium for The Guardian adds, Paying the Land is a powerful piece of work, and in this time of pandemic and race protests, Sacco's concern with the decimation caused by injustice and internalized ideas of inferiority with how the system is built for capitalism to succeed, not humans, resonates even more than it already would have. Finally, Alice Kelly of the Times Literary Supplement says, Paying the land is decidedly not an elegy for a lost culture, but ultimately a tale of colonization and resistance. Welcome to Between the Covers, Joe Sacco. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Well, let's begin with the originating impulse. What was your original interest in centering the indigenous people of the Northwest Territories in this book? And then how did the actual experience of, of being up north come up against your your initial imagination of the project? So initially, I wanted to do a book about climate change, and I wanted to do a, a book that encompassed a number of different places uh, to see how indigenous people relate to resource extraction, which is always the first point we can say of climate change. It's about resources being extracted and CO2 and all that stuff. Um, I went to the Northwest Territories uh, first because I thought it would be easier than other places to go. It would sort of get my um, get me accustomed to talking to indigenous people and seeing how that was going to work out. And Canada is close. I thought it would be cheaper, which it wasn't. And so I went up there. Uh, it was uh, ostensibly for a magazine piece. When I was up there, I saw a lot of things that were quite different from what I thought I was going to see. I th my perceptions beforehand uh, were changing pretty rapidly when I was there. The main thing I noticed was that it wasn't such a monolithic 
story. I, I thought going up there that I would find mostly indigenous people very opposed to resource extraction. And that's not what I found. I found some of that, of course, but I found variations in that theme or even people who are much more gung-ho than I imagined. And so that became a bit more complicated. I also realized that there were a lot of other things going on that had affected the indigenous people of Canada uh, that had to do with colonialism. And so it became just a bigger project in my mind. And I realized I better just focus on this one place and do it right than spread myself around different continents doing a comparative story, which would be great, but comics take a long time. So I just I just realized I better uh, concentrate on one area. Well, you mentioned very briefly in this answer that, you know, you thought it was going to be cheaper. It's closer by than going to India or going to Palestine. How remote were you? And I'm imagining it's the remoteness that's part of the expense. The remoteness is part of the expense because ironically where they're you know, extracting oil and natural gas is not where it's cheapest. It has to be refined or processed elsewhere. So I had a guide there who had initially sort of proposed coming up there in the first place named Shauna Morgan, and we were going to drive. And um, you drive basically to these remote communities, which are up the Mackenzie River Valley. Just It's basically subarctic, uh, just below the Arctic Circle. So these, it's a very long drive, but we wanted to get a sense of the, the country and the size of it. But it's expensive to drive. It's expensive to stay in these communities. I mean, they have like these containers where you can, you can rent for the night, but they're quite expensive. And just the logistics of the whole thing, it, it, it was much more expensive than I thought. So it wasn't like I could, I felt like I really couldn't spend more than a few weeks at a time. And I did two, two trips up there. Yeah. Well, I, I suspect a lot of listeners of the show probably know your work already, but you're also only the second person to come on the show to talk about a quote unquote graphic novel in, in its 10 years. And there are, are likely a lot of people listening where this might be their first encounter with one and with comics journalistic storytelling. So I was hoping before we dove into paying the land and the story and specifics of what you're doing, we could first orient people more broadly to the way you tell stories generally and how you position yourself when you do and what the politics are of how you position yourself. And what I mean is I think of your manifesto at the beginning of your book, Journalism, that really in a lot of ways tries to distinguish yourself from journalism's image of itself in its most traditional sense. So from the idea of a journalist being invisible, objective, and seeking balance, because your work, generally speaking, foregrounds the subjective nature of storytelling or of reportage. And not only has you yourself as a character in it, but also the process of you getting the story, of you learning the story, and how you learn the story becomes part of the story. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit more about the ethics or the aesthetics or the politics of making these choices for you before we, we talk about how you position yourself and how you tell the story of paying the land. I, um, I studied journalism at the University of Oregon, and my first desire was to become a hard news reporter. I never really thought of drawing or comics uh, in terms of 
a career. That was just something I'd been doing since I was a kid. It was important to me. It was more than just a hobby. But I never really came up with a way that that could be a viable uh, means of living. So it was hard news that I wanted to do. And that didn't work out when I got out of the when I got out of the university, it didn't work out. So I had to find something else uh, to make ends meet. And eventually I fell back on drawing and I started to do comics. My first comics were pretty satirical and all that. But at some point I wanted to actually see a place and go and do sort of a travelogue. But when I was there, and, and the first place I went to was the Middle East, it was uh, the Palestinian territories, and this was in the early 1990s, the journalistic training really kicked in. And so more than a travelogue, it became a journalistic inquiry. So I was interviewing people, trying to get quotes right, trying to fill in the picture to make a sort of a, a good study of what I was seeing and the people I was talking to. Comics sort of developed for me, journalistically, quite organically, without really overthinking it or coming up with a theory beforehand. And the thing that I realized um, in just the natural organic way I was doing the stories was I was drawing myself into the picture because my encounters with people seemed really important. Um, how they were responding to me, the outsider coming in asking, asking these questions, it could show me being, show people being hospitable, show the tensions I had sometimes with people. It was sort of a natural outgrowth of some of the earlier um, uh, stories I was, I was doing about my own life, just to draw myself as a figure. I began to realize that that was actually an important component of what I was doing, because it was showing me as an outsider in a community. In other words, um, in journalist in journalistic training, the way I was taught was that the journalist stays out of the story, is kind of the fly on the wall, uh, doing this reporting. I soon realized that you know you're not really an all-knowing, all-seeing demigod that really understands the situation completely well. You're learning as you're there, and you're having encounters that color the stories you're getting. And that maybe tell you something about the societies you're, you're placing yourself in. So drawing myself in the picture became sort of a signal to the reader that this was a very subjective experience, that I was, I was stepping away from the objective journalism that I'd been taught. And that sort of followed through with all my work. I'm always a character. You can always judge my work uh, as, some, as something that is done by an imperfect being trying to get information, learning as he goes along. Well, one of the things I notice about you as a character in this book versus the others is that you seem like a smaller and a quieter presence. And it made me wonder if there were ways this project differed than others that resulted in this. If maybe collaborating with or interacting with the Diné people differed from talking to Palestinians or Bosnians in a way that reflected the way you ended up portraying yourself? Well, I think you're right. Um, I try to think of myself in a different way just because I was talking to indigenous people and I wanted, I wanted to be careful how I was talking to indigenous people. Um, 
there's so much politics around talking to indigenous people. So I'm very aware of the moment in a way. I wanted to, I, it was clear that I wasn't really a part of the story. And I really, as much as possible, I wanted things in, in the people's words. Um, of course, I'm showing my interactions with people. Sometimes we're going on little adventures and all that. But I didn't really need to hold the story together as a character, as I did, let's say, in the Palestinian book, the first book I did, which is a series of episodes that were linked by my character. I found I was doing some of my stories a bit differently. I was told, you know, when you're speaking to elders, indigenous elders, don't interrupt. And it became something that helped. Uh, I noticed in interviews I've done in other situations, I have a tendency to interrupt, to talk over someone's answer. You, you see your faults in a way when you, when you actually really try harder to listen. And so that was quite a bit different for me, was to let people's answers unfold without me trying to corral them into a point I was thinking they were going to make. Uh, so in that sense, there was there were some differences. Well, and in, in 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 that way, I think it was actually a good experience for me because I I learned to sort of accommodate myself with the way people have uh, meet and talk and reciprocate when when uh, when you know when they're dealing with each other. Yeah. Well, in one interview, you said that you you had to make sure in some of these more remote communities that they understood what you were going to do with the information that some of the communities didn't have as much exposure or had little exposure to quote unquote Western media. I'd be curious about the process of how you um, oriented them to the project and then how much or how little distrust or wariness you encountered given the history, not just of cultural genocide, but also of cultural appropriation and extraction. When you're speaking to elders there, as I said, you, you're you sort of on listening mode. And I think especially when people first meet you, they're not really expecting that sort of, some people aren't expecting that sort of transactional thing that here's a journalist, he's getting information. They sort of want to get to know you. I would sort of introduce myself as someone who was going to do a journalistic project. And I would ask, um, can I take notes? And the answer was no. Can I record? The answer was no. This happened not in every occasion by any means, um, but it happened to the point that I enough, at the, especially at the beginning, that I felt, okay, there's a, they're expecting something different from this conversation than sort of a journalistic transaction. And I had to accommodate myself to that. But it was difficult because then what I would do is reconstruct a, a conversation um, that night, for example, and then bring it back somehow and say, you know, we talked about all these things. Would you be comfortable with me putting these things in it? And are these your words? Or, I mean, and they would sort of accommodate me with that. They would um, say, no, that's not exactly what I meant. And they would give me sort of quotes, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But in other cases, I realized that it was just, it's just sort of an awareness when people are telling you something very uh, personal about some spiritual value. I thought I better just check to make sure that they understood that 
I was maybe going to use this in a, in a story. And in one particular case, the person said, no, I'd really rather you didn't. So it, you know, it, it just helped bring my antennae out. In fact, it was at the very beginning I had those sorts of issues. Later, um, I tried to be very, very clear about what I was going to do, you know, more, even more clear. And I would, I would really try to say, you know, um, let, please let me record because I really want to have these, these things in your words. And the truth is, you know, there's a, there's a real range of, um, of people and what their experiences are. A lot of people are used to researchers yeah. through, and they're often signing, um, uh, release forms and all that sort of thing. And there are people you're meeting that are quite well educated in the Western sense and they get what you're doing. And, but, but I still, I learned to be a little more in just in general. I think the important thing I came away with is just to listen better. Um, and yeah, I mean, they've had issues with people coming up, uh, and taking stories and then they never really get anything out of that. Like they, they value their own, what they call traditional knowledge. That's very important to them. And in some ways you feel like you're, you're there like an, like an extracting industry, you're, you're extracting traditional knowledge. And so you have to be, I, I'm trying to be care. I was just trying to be careful with that. Um, and see myself as someone told me, try to see people as they might be seeing you through, through eyes that are used to people coming and exploiting, mm -hmm. exploiting the land and exploiting them. Well, when I, when I was interviewing Molly Crabapple, she was talking about the ways drawings versus photographs gave access. So for instance, when she was covering the trials in Guantanamo photographers weren't weren't allowed to take pictures, but she was allowed to draw everything except for the faces, I think. And so perhaps because of an unexamined bias that drawings are perhaps less serious or less threatening or less accurate than photos, she was not only able to get around censorship in going to the Guantanamo trials, but also to show censorship, to show a, a blanked out face or a, or a blacked out face uh, to show what she's not allowed to draw as a presence in the actual uh, drawing. And obviously you're able to go places with your drawings that you couldn't literally go, say a, a jail, an Israeli jail cell with a, a Palestinian in, in a jail cell using first person accounts and your own imagination that a photographer couldn't do. But I wondered also if drawing provided you a way to establish rapport in real time, if there's something less threatening and invasive than taking a photograph, um, which feels like, I mean, I wonder if like taking a photograph is, it feels more like taking and if drawing something feels like producing, I don't know if I'm making sense, but I wondered if there was some, some way in which the mode itself was a way to create trust. I'm not entirely sure, but the second trip uh, to the Northwest Territories, I was able to show photocopies of something I produced for a magazine about the first trip. And that was really useful to have something to show people and say, this is what I'm, this is the sort of work I'm doing. See, I'm showing your lives in this way. That was helpful. That's been helpful to me before 
even in the Palestinian territories, when I was able to bring the first book I did about the Palestinians to show them when I was researching the second book, um, people sort of see pictures and they get that right away. They get what you're trying to do. And maybe they even under, begin to understand better your, your questions that are uh, sometimes asking a lot of visual detail. And so they're, they're able to work with you more on, on the interview, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And that's, that has been useful. It's usually when you show people images of their own lives where uh, a bell is struck for them and they go, okay, I know what you're doing. I see what you're doing. I see value in this project. I had to be, I was, you know, you, you say you can take people into places you haven't seen, and that's true. In this particular project, the stuff I was most uh, worried about getting wrong was the, when people described life in the bush. And so that involved um, a lot of visual research in archives to see how people lived in the bush 50 years ago, you know, almost 100 years ago. Um, and so I took a lot from that and I ended up sending that first chapter, which is very much about life in the bush to, uh, some indigenous people, including the, the main character in that, in that, the only character really in that, um, story, Paul Andrew in Yellowknife, he managed to see it and sort of, you know, give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. Yeah. And fortunately it was a thumbs up. And so that matters a lot to me too, is to get that. Uh, affirmation, especially about something like that, where there's a lot of details about tents, about um, dog sleds, and about just life in general. I wanted to get the tone right, not just not just how things looked and how things were tied up, or how fish were gutted, but I wanted to get sort of the tone right. And he seemed to like it, and so that that is always really important to me to to have that kind of um, validation. In, in case you just tuned in, we're we're talking today to Joe Sacco about his latest book, Paying the Land. Well, let's let's talk briefly about that opening chapter. The book opens with the phrase, "You find yourself in the circle," and an image of a baby being held aloft from a moose skin boat, the umbilical cord still attached. And we spend the first chapter in the voice of someone who is clearly not you. Later, we learn it's Paul Andrew who you just mentioned remembering his childhood days living on the land in a largely traditional way. There, there are tents and guns and stoves and, and twice a year trips into town, but otherwise there, there, there feels like there's this cohesive circular sense of identity and reciprocity with the land. And we never see you in this chapter, but we know you're there because of a couple questions you ask our narrator from off of the margins of the page but also because you include bracketed words in the dialogue balloons where the story is being told by Paul Andrew, words that let mm -hmm. us words that let us know that you've transcribed someone speaking and you're indicating where a word has been dropped by the speaker and is being added by you for legibility. And at least for me, this touch, which runs through the book, feels like a way that you're establishing trust with me, with the reader that you're going for a certain, that you're indicating that you're going for a certain high level of accuracy and reflecting the story, the way the people live it and want it to be told, but are also indicating when you're needing or 
deciding to add something of your own. Is, is that, do you see that as the purpose of the bracketed words of, of in a way, um, establishing a certain parameter between you and the reader? Well, I mean, that's just my journalistic training, really. We, we were always told that you don't add words or, or subtract without either putting in an ellipsis to show that something's dropped out um, that might be important, but you don't think it is necessarily, or it interrupts the flow. Um, or where you, yes, you do put in a word in brackets to show that um, just, yeah, to, to keep the flow going. Though I've had people tell me, including my editor, that the brackets are really disruptive. It's just me as a journalist. I still have that ethics of journalism where I cannot condense people's thoughts um, without letting the reader know that I'm condensing their thoughts. So um, I had a lot more brackets in the book. And the biggest editing I had to do at the, at the very end of this process um, and editing I had to do directly on the original art because I, I don't even know how to use uh, uh, photo Photoshop, I have to say, was uh, my editor thought there were too many brackets and it was it was interrupting the flow itself. So we we made a fair compromise, I think, where I, I put things back into people's diction if I if we both felt that it, it made sense in that way. Um, so the the quotes are accurate. All the quotes are accurate. And that that is very important to me. I'm very pro bracket. I'll just say that. Like, I feel like that's a crucial way for me to trust you taking me through the story is the is the bracket. Well, that's the idea. I mean, the the idea is journalistic accuracy and journalistic techniques might look a little odd in a comic book and might not flow in the exact same way that people are used to, but that's just who I am and it's, it's not going to go away. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, could you speak just briefly to accuracy and subjectivity? Because I think a lot of people would maybe reflexively think that accuracy goes with objectivity, but really it feels like your book is both very subjective and very accurate. I think journalistic objectivity, as it was taught to me uh, in journalism school, is really an impossibility. And it's not something that should be strived for because I think it often leads you into fooling yourself that you're doing a service to the subject. Um, we're taught in journalism school that, I mean, if you want to make it if you want to put it in crude terms, that there are always two sides to every story and that you should just, you should show both sides. And of course, I think you need to show different versions of a story or, or give different ideas. But the fact that there are two sides to every story doesn't necessarily mean that one side, they're, they're both equally right or they're both equally wrong. I've heard journalists say things like, well, I've pissed everyone off. I must be doing something right. I never really think in those terms. I mean, I, I think you should strive for what is the truth of the situation. And that's what I'm going for. I mean, I'm, I have my own um, prejudices going in. I want people to know 
that I am an imperfect journalist going into a place, but also I choose my subjects because I have a, I have a sympathy for them. I, I'm interested in what the Dene people have to say about resource extraction and their own lives. I don't want to balance that with what resource extraction industry is saying about what they're doing and what the Canadian government is saying about what they're doing. I want to maybe touch on it, but it's, I'm not trying to wash out one with the other. Yeah. So I have a point of view. It's signaled by the fact that I'm actually a figure in my drawings. You see that it's, it's one person's, you're seeing a lot of things through my eyes. And I'm comfortable with my worldview. I'm comfortable with my subjectivity. And the, the reason, the, the, where I sort of had my real first, where objectivity sort of broke itself on the anvil of reality was, had to do with the Palestinian situation. Because I, I grew up thinking Palestinians were terrorists. And I realized that was because of objective journalism that was telling me that, um, this had happened, there'd been a hijacking, there'd been a terrorist attack, there'd been a commando raid. And those are all objective facts, but they didn't provide me with background, with other facts, or with any sort of holistic picture of what was actually going on. And through these sort of cherry-picked facts, I, got, I had a very skewed idea of a whole group of people. And that example has served me well throughout my entire career, where you cannot, you cannot, you have to separate what are facts from what is the truth of the situation, because facts uh, can be ordered in any way to come up with any, you know, any sort of idea that you want. Well, the the first time we actually see you, Joe Sacco, in the book as a figure is fittingly in the second chapter, which sort of begins to introduce the encroachment of quote unquote Western influence on the region and opens with you and your guide also going into the region. And this is also where it feels like the imagery shifts where we start to see the frames or boxes that delineate scenes that people are most used to seeing in comics. Whereas in the first chapter, there really are no divisions or borders. Um, but as the book progresses, it, it becomes clear also why I think the first voice in the book is Paul Andrew, because his life straddles a divide uh, between the life before a circle of meaning and, uh, and a life after, which is a, feels like a different set of circles as, uh, or cycles of, of dependency, uh, whether it's alcohol and drugs or welfare or physical and sexual abuse and a world where every option seems to be a bad option to a greater or lesser degree. But so I wondered if perhaps the central exploration of the book is not your initial impulse to discuss resource extraction, but how this one circle is broken and this other set of circles is created. And I guess in that light, I was wondering if you could orient us to the scenario of residential schools and how they were the vanguard of cultural genocide in Canada, because it feels like in a way, at least as I walk through with you, it feels like that is one of the big things that you discover and then spend a lot of time unpacking in terms of the way it's, it's, it's reverberated into the present moment. Well, 
that's what I meant when I said that I went up to do a book about resource extraction and pretty soon it became a book about a lot of other things. But definitely the residential schools is something I'd read about beforehand. But it's only really when I was there that it became really how it became very clear to me that this wasn't just something that had happened to the Dene people or the indigenous people of Canada. It was one of the primary things that happened to them. And it's something that even though the residential school system is finished, is continuing to happen to them. And basically, um, from about the 1850s on up to about the 1990s, uh, indigenous people, indigenous kids were taken from their families and put into school systems which were not just meant to get people to read and write. That wasn't, the, the point was to, and this was outlined very specifically by the first prime minister of Canada, the purpose was to break people from their culture. It was to turn indigenous people into some form of a white person, to Christianize them, to eradicate their languages, to make them think and like white people and ultimately be useful to white people as wage laborers. I mean, there's no other way to see what happened uh, except through those terms. So I have a number of characters in the book which describe to me in some detail what happened to them. How, uh, let's say in the case of Paul Andrew, a plane landed near, near the camp and a RCMP, a Mountie basically, and a couple of other people came out and just took some of the kids with them and flew them off to who knows where, basically, because the parents did not know where their kids were going. Sometimes in these situations, siblings were split up. And, and these kids suffered horribly from this, of course. They were away from their parents, away from the land, and they were regimented. They were they were made into some, like I say, some version of, of white people. And it's had a tremendous impact on indigenous people in Canada. When, when these kids eventually returned to their homes, they had been traumatized by all kinds of physical abuse, in many cases, sexual abuse. And they often came back not really knowing how to speak their language anymore, not being able to speak to their grandparents, for example. And this was basically cut them them off from their communities. And it's taken the people who've been successful at doing it, it's taken them a long time to reestablish those connections with their traditions, with their culture, with their language. But many people, as you can imagine, succumb to things like alcohol. They were self-medicating. They were trying to sort of get through the day after being traumatized for years and years and years. And so this this has um, not only affected the people who went through the residential school system, but it's affected the children of those people because trauma is visited again on the next generation and then the next generation. And so you'll see the cycle of domestic abuse um, and alcoholism that has pervaded the, the indigenous communities. And so what you've, you've taken communities that were very, very strong, which I'm describing in the first chapter, had a great sense 
parts of themselves and where they belonged in the scheme of the cosmos, basically, in very profound ways, and you've you've cut them from that. And so the residential school system has pervaded every aspect of people's lives, how they deal with each other, how they deal with the Canadian government, how they approach land claims. It seemed to it seemed to sort of infiltrate um, all every bit of their lives, as I said. Yeah. Well, this this 150 year period of of kidnapping children, forcing them to speak English and practice Christianity, and all the various sadistic things that happened in the schools was ultimately um, called cultural genocide by the Canadian government itself as part of the of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I wondered if you could just touch on the both the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the payout that happened to the Indigenous peoples of Canada and and also your thoughts on that reckoning in relationship to the United States. Uh, do you feel like Canada has had more of a reckoning than the United States? Uh, do you feel like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is something that has moved things forward, if we can say forward, um, or at least been a step towards reparation? Well, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was sort of an offshoot of a class action lawsuit brought against the government of Canada um, by survivors of the residential school system. So the payouts were something uh, separate from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but were somehow also linked to that process. So the problem with the payouts, as was described to me by William Greenland, who uh, works with with Indigenous people on domestic abuse issues, is that a lot of people who testified before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission were redredging a lot of very terrible traumas, and they were giving testimony. In doing so, a lot of things that they had been trying to suppress with alcohol um, were coming back up. When they got payouts, he told me some of them had a lot of money suddenly and basically just drank themselves to death. So there's that aspect of it. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think, rightfully said that cultural genocide had been perpetrated on the indigenous peoples of Canada. Um, I think it was a very useful thing in that people were able to tell their stories and it became very officially recognized as part of a record. And I think the Canadian government squirmed uh, hearing those words by this independent commission eventually has apologized. I think all those things are, are to the good. Obviously, in the United States, there's been no reckoning that I can see with what happened to indigenous peoples here. So um, what they did in Canada is for the good. But is it, you know, there's, there's a, um, um, an indigenous uh, intellectual named Leanne Simpson, and she makes a point 
that whatever whatever the truth and reconciliation did that was good in 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 getting Canada to look at at, at what had happened during the residential school period, it's also an official thing. Does it does it really does everything sort of stop? Is everything sort of tied with a bow once this commission um, announces? Okay, it's cultural genocide. Actually, the effects of the residential school system will continue probably for generations. And so it's still unwinding like colonialism itself. It's still unwinding. Yeah. It seems like a lot of communities, especially when there's a a scarcity of representation, um, are wary of having their, let's say quote unquote, dirty laundry aired to the world publicly. Like if there's a scarcity of representation of a group, often they just want to have their best face put forth to the public. And I wondered about in this project, I mean, we do see, you do frame it really well. I mean, you do frame that all of the things that are going on now, uh, drinking to extended blackouts and premature death, astronomical suicide rates, sexual abuse within the community that is five times the national average, is all coming from this protracted trauma and from the residential schools and this complete and um, intended breakdown of uh, intergenerational knowledge. But I did still wonder if, if there were parts of the community you encountered that didn't want uh, these, these things, uh, these struggles that are going on within the community now to come out because it, it's one of the great things about the book is you have so many people who are speaking by name. Like we know, we get to know people first and last name, obviously they're willful participants, but you go to some very um, fraught and dark places with them around recovery and around um, reclamation of, of traditional skills around uh, bringing back language, but also around uh abuse that has been suffered or abuse that has been uh, passed on from generation to another. Uh, were, were there any sense of uh, people you encountered that wanted to close ranks around that the way you might see in, in other, in so many other communities when, when you don't see a lot of people in, of the, of that community in, in literature? What I was told to be careful of was, I mean, someone actually told me, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't an indigenous person was don't bring up residential schools hmm. because they, that person was worried that it would create some sort of, you know, someone reliving their trauma in front of me and that might not be a good thing. But the thing is, the, a lot of these things came up organically without me probing. Um, talk about alcoholism, talking about what, it, what people had suffered in, in residential schools. I never, I never pushed people to tell me what they weren't going to tell me. Some people sometimes would say, uh, I'll tell you this, you know, and of course you just respect that. I didn't, I didn't probe in that way, but things like residential schools and alcoholism in particular were things that were always hovering in conversations. People would often mention that they were not, that been drinking and they stopped it came up and they, they told me about these things in pretty organic ways. Mm. So it's not, 
there might have been one case where I sat down with someone and said, I'd like to talk to you. No, a couple of cases where I said, I want to talk about residential schools. But but those were cases where uh, people told me what they wanted to tell me and no more. Alcoholism came up quite a bit. People are very aware that it's a problem in the Northwest Territories. It's no, it's no secret, in other words. I, I only obviously put in what, what people told me and what they seemed to be comfortable telling me at the time. Um, the important thing for me, because if you, if you see the structure of the book, I start talking about the problems before I really get into the reason why. I don't talk about what happened, the cruelties and the trauma of the residential schools until I've already let people know that there's a big problem with alcohol. And, and the community seem somehow adrift from all the things that had made them so strong before. It's important to show the context of, of these traumas and to really point the finger where it should be pointed. Because to me, when I see, or when people tell me about the alcoholism um, and other, other problems within the communities, it's about colonialism. I mean, to me, I see colonialism when, when, when people talk to me about alcoholism. There are things that did not exist before contact and certainly did not exist before the residential school system made people into, it tried, basically tried to misshape people. So I really, what's important to me is to put it in the context and to show what, what the sort of damage colonialism can, can bring upon a people. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Joe Sacco about his latest book, Pain the Land. Well, let's let's pivot to resource extraction itself, the thing that originally brought you to this project, a desire both to do something on climate change, but obliquely, but also to do something that wasn't about war. Um, in your manifesto at the beginning of journalism, you one of the things you reject is the notion of fair and balanced, which you've you've talked a little bit about already today. And and you quote the British journalist Robert Fisk, who said, "Reporters should be neutral and unbiased on the side of those who suffer." And to me, that seems clear in your work as an ethos, whether it be Bosnian Muslims or Palestinians or African migrants, you aren't on the side of of the Israelis and and the Palestinians, but on the side of the dispossessed, even as you try to portray the complex reasons and realities and contradictory narratives. But without knowing much, one might imagine that Fisk's motto could also apply here, that you're on the side of the Diné against the forces of resource extraction. But as you've alluded to, the situation that you encounter is really different. You're, you're clearly on the side of these indigenous communities, but it feels like to be on their side is to show a full spectrum of their relationship to resource extraction, which isn't usually one of clear opposition. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about more in more detail about what you discovered in, with regards to indigenous relationships to resource extraction in the Northwest Territories, and then how you go about um, as you did with alcoholism, for instance, contextualizing this extremely complex relationship that's happening now? I think the relationship that indigenous people have in the Northwest Territories to resource extraction 
is related to what happened to them as colonialized people. They were basically forced off the land. If people didn't want to um, send their kids to residential schools, the only alternative was to have a school built in your community and uh, move into the community. So people stopped living off the land. So what you have have then is the vast majority of people in the communities I went to, the only jobs that are available, you, they've, they've, the people have been turned into wage laborers, basically. They used to survive off the land. Now they're wage laborers. So the only jobs available are the extraction jobs. Those are the only real jobs available that actually pay relatively well. There are government job, there are government sector jobs, and there's welfare. That's those are the alternatives. So, people's relationship with resource extraction is is quite realistic. For those people who their only employment is out in the oil and gas fields, they want those jobs. So they are much more interested in having the jobs and maybe trying to figure out a way that uh, the impacts can be mitigated. I never, I never met any indigenous person who didn't sort of qualify what they were telling me about resource extraction by saying, we have to take care of the land first. That's the most important thing. All of them said that. But then within that, some people were just opposed to it because they didn't like the idea of chemicals being injected into the land uh, for fracking. And, you know, where's, where are those chemicals going to come up and what are those chemicals? And other people just thinking, we need jobs here. How else are we going to survive? You know, they, they see their old, the old ways are just no longer practicable. People have lost a lot of their bush skill, bush skills. So there's a lot of within, there was one community I was in Toledo where there's quite a range of ideas about what resource extraction meant. And it wasn't just about the land. It's also what it means to a community. When, when you build a road to a community and make it very accessible so that resources can be extracted around it, if you're bringing in workers who aren't indigenous, you're bringing in trouble, you're bringing in alcohol, you're bringing in all kinds of things, you're raising the prices of, you know, in the hotels, the places that are being rented. Um, there, there are issues that come with, with accepting resource extraction. So pe some people are opposed to that. And some people are opposed to um, just what the extraction is, is, is uh, doing to the land. But like I say, it wasn't monolithic. There are a lot of people on different sides of that issue. There is also so something that you also that I've seen too is sometimes between communities there can be problems in the south um, of the Northwest Territories. I I looked at two communities, one of them called Trout Lake at the time. Now it's called uh, Sambake, if I'm pronouncing that right. I hope I am. And the other one is Fort Liard. And they're both sitting on a substantial amount of natural gas. One community is very cautious about what that might mean to it if they open up for development. And the other community is has been much more gung-ho under the chief they had at the time. So you'll find there are conflicts that develop between indigenous communities 
because if the boundary between those communities hasn't been settled, then it's going to be an issue. Right. So there's a lot, there are a lot more, there are a lot more things going on when you're talking about resource extraction. It has to do with what people think about the land, what they think about development coming in. And then it has to do with, well, where's our boundary? Well, it made me think of situations also that seemed similar in the United States. And some of the research that I had done for preparation with different indigenous poets who've come on the show, discovering that the relationship between the Navajo and coal mining and that the Navajo have the third largest coal mining business in the United States. And, you know, there are people, obviously we know of the people, indigenous people blocking the pipelines, but also the indigenous people working on the pipelines. Um, but also where you and I live, Joe, the, the, there are many tribal nations that are involved in, in, uh, timber, um, and timber harvest. And they say something similar to what you heard over and over again in the Northwest territories. It's better to control resource extraction than to have it control us. So in a, in a way it's, it's like the different options on the table are different degrees or methodologies or limits around extraction, but non-extraction is, is not really one of the central options. I'd say most people, even those who were quite, um, felt themselves quite close to the land and to their traditions, didn't foreclose the idea entirely, resource extraction. But I did meet people who would like to get away from it, you know, totally. I, I think for me, the surprise was I thought there'd be much more opposition than I found. But then when you see the economic realities of the place and what are, you know, like you say, what, what are the options? I mean, welfare, is that an option? Um, maybe you could say it's, it's a, it helps people and all that, but it also, it, it creates a cycle of dependency right. that might not be healthy for people who were very strong in and of themselves beforehand. And government jobs, okay, that's that's one thing, but that's also a system that is um, quite bloated. And I mean, as they say in the Northwest Territories, we're the most governed people on earth. They have so many systems of overlapping government structures. There are so many government workers there. It's I won't say that's a form of um, I won't say that's a form of uh, uh, welfare, but in some ways it. It, it begun. It begin begins to seem like it. Well, I did appreciate how we see this full, this full spectrum. Like I'm thinking of Daryl Beaulieu. Oh yeah, um, right. Don't, who's who's well, very pro fracking, and he's pro the idea that the community will succeed by creating more jobs, bringing more work to a community that has astronomical unemployment. And he says also, I think correctly, that the Diné are conf are conflicted about resource extraction, but so is the world. And then he says to us, if you don't feel comfortable with extraction, stop using your car and your iPhone. But then there are people like Amos Scott, who's a younger generation, one that is trying to reconnect what has been lost culturally, who also says 
that even if the Diné do everything right by the land, even if they write themselves to the land, reestablishing a true reciprocity with the land, this notion of paying the land, um, where the caribou would be healthy again, where the Diné people consider themselves the caribou people, there would still be climate change because of what's going on everywhere else. And it would still affect them more than most people, which he said with a lot of obviously justified anger. I, I don't know. It feels like these, it feels like getting this full spectrum in a weird way, Amos Scott and Daryl, even though they have extremely different responses, one super pro industry and one reconnecting to lost traditional skills, they, they seem like they share or at least partially share the same analysis of the way they're, they're um, trapped in this cycle. Both Daryl and Amos understand that they are in a wider context, a worldwide context, that the climate change situation isn't just a matter for indigenous people to solve and to block. They are caught up in capitalism like all of us are, and they have to feed themselves. And they understand this, whether they, whether they want to go ahead with it and sort of roll with what capitalism is sort of the cards that capitalism has played to them, or whether they are critiquing it like Amos is and recognizing it, but understanding that they are in that, that they're all, they are in that structure. They both understand that the ultimate, the paradigm we live in is capitalism. One of the things I was surprised about was how many of the Diné people uh, you profile ha had had held prominent political office within the Northwest Territories something that feels different to me than in the United States. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about these two generations that you foregrounded, a younger one whose parents include former premiers of the Northwest Territories and other political figures, um, whose parents might have been more radical at one point with the American Indian movement, but are, have now moved into political movements or like governmental political movements, but then also this younger generation, um, the children who are who are being groomed to be future leaders, but are involved in groups like the Diné Way, uh, which feel more like they're trying to bridge that gap that was created by the schools. I talked to um, some older people uh, who had experience growing up in the bush, but then had spent time in residential schools and came they're they're from that generation they're from a generation in the 1970s that helped block a pipeline project down the mackenzie river valley um that was quite militant that it sort of had grown up in the 60s and 70s had seen what was going on around the world including the american indian movement the civil rights movement and i think there were a lot of people around the world at that time that felt like there was almost like this popular front of agitation they were part of it. And so I want to tell the story of how they ended up becoming part of Canadian mainstream politics, because this really went against their grain. And basically what they were told by their elders was that, you know, get involved in the Canadian government's politics, become politicians. We want to negotiate with people across the table that are us, that look like us, that that are Dene. 
And so some of these militants, people like uh, Stephen Kakfui and Jim Antoine, sort of, I, I would say, bit their tongues and did that. They got themselves involved in, in the political mainstream to get what they could for their people. And I think to a large extent, they feel that they've, they've succeeded. Uh, it might not be perfect. They might not have great love for all those institutions, but they were sort of, they were there to do a job. The generation that followed, in, in fact, some of their children are the ones I, I spoke to, have less connection with the land than their parents and are really, tr and are, have a, a very strong critique of Western civilization and what it's done to them. That's the one thing that I was always um, really, uh, I won't say surprised, but it really struck me was the great critique of capitalism and what the West has done. Um, but they are even less sort of connected to the land than their, the elder generation was. So they have to sort of start this project of culturally reinvigorating themselves um, getting their language back, learning to be on the land again, because what they all recognize is that the land is what really gives them definition as a people and what gives them strength. So it's, it's, they're, a much, they're much more self-consciously Dene, the younger, the younger group. But fascinating, coming up with a project that they're, they're trying to go forward against, really against a lot of odds. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about two land, landmark cases between the Diné and the Canadian government, uh, the Paulette case and the Berger hearing, the former when the Diné asserted Aboriginal rights to 400,000 square miles, and the second around a proposed natural gas pipeline through the Mackenzie River Valley. Like everything else, there's there's this wide range of opinions and stances taken on whether to negotiate, how to negotiate, whether to negotiate together, or whether a certain community would go its own way. And I was marveling at how you presented this material. I was marveling much as, as Art Spiegelman, the author of Mouse, was also marveling about the same thing in, in your Zoom conversation with him earlier this week, at how you were able to deliver so much information in a way that was entertaining, that kept the reader engaged, while also being complex and pedagogical. Spiegelman was interested in how you kept the page interesting for the reader in these moments specifically, rather than what he would describe as a static assembly, assembly line of talking heads. But I was hoping maybe you could just talk a little bit about text image in, in these moments, because you do, this book is this book is edifying and entertaining at the same time. And it's kind of remarkable how much you're giving us history in an extremely complicated way while also giving us a, a story, essentially, visually and textually. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, that's the whole trick, right, is to take something that I find interesting and complex and seeing if I can make all that accessible to a reader in a way that isn't going to seem just like a, a straight lecture. I mean, you learn this stuff over time, I think. If you look at my early journalistic work, like uh, the Palestine book, um, it's very text heavy. 
it's too text heavy. Over time, I've learned to make sure that what I was going to, all the text I was going to put on one page is now spread over two or three. There, there are ways you can, that are pretty obvious, in other words, that you can bring a reader along. But, you know, the, if the place is engaging, especially visually, it's engaging, you're, a lot of the work is done for you. I mean, the Northwest Territories is really beautiful. It's really striking. And so there's a lot of great imagery you can you can use to help the reader along. And then, of course, it's just it's a matter of of looking at the material, telling yourself, well, what is what are the essential parts that need to be told? And of course, that takes a considerable amount of time, organization and sort of reading things through over again, over and over again to make sure you're not tripping up on with little details. I mean, the details can be important, but often too many things can get in the way. I try as much as possible to let characters tell these really complex stories. That was kind of the trick with this story, rather than just sort of being the voice of wisdom, recounting all this information. I let people who were actually intimately involved in the negotiations explain why they made the decisions they made. And I think that's how I decided to carry the story. And they, they, they told the stories as they wanted to tell them. Perhaps you could say imperfectly, they might have let, left a couple of things out. And obviously it was their subjective take on um, these political processes. But I think that's, it's much more important to mix up um, or, to, or to show the relationship between human actors and the historical, what happens historically, because it's humans who make history. And so I was kind of lucky to be able to speak to a lot of these people who could tell me what had happened. Right around that time when you're talking with Spiegelman about this, he brought up your influence, some of your influences, for instance, the Flemish painter Bruegel. But you also brought up some literary influences. You brought up Celine and also poetry in a general sense. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about those influences or, or other influences that are uh, potentially literary influences that affect the way you're placing or text in relationship to each other and also text in relationship to image. Ferdinand Celine was one of those uh, writers whom I read when I was in my 20s. And I was, I was so struck by the rhythm of his work. Uh, you know, you have to get the right translation, of course, but... Uh, he would have these phrases that were just really powerful and punchy and separated by ellipses. And often these phrases were just repeating, re somehow repeating an idea, but in a different way. But the accumulative effect was really, was really kind of powerful. And I was interested in like, how, how can I transport that kind of punchy staccato rhythm into comics. And it's actually relatively easy. You can cut captions so that they're just single phrases and spread them on the page. And in doing that, not only are you having these sort of punchy phrases that are individuated through a page, but you can also lead the reader's eye with those captions, taking the reader across images that maybe are counterpoint or maybe are, uh, are 
make the point more emphatic. So this this notion of tying the actual written word on the on the drawn page to the drawings um, and integrating those things has become like just part of what I've learned to do over a long period of time. The poetic stuff is important to me. And, and th I'm saying this is a, as, as not a great reader of poetry or not someone who's reading poetry all the time, but there's so much concision that has to take place when you're doing comics with the words. And to me, I often read out what I've written la uh, out loud. I want to hear the rhythm of them. I want to hear the way the words will sound to a reader. And in that way, I sort of relate it to poetry, uh, where you're, the way words sound together really matters to me a lot. I'm, 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 I'm often really teasing, teasing those things out. I was surprised to learn that you start with the text when you're doing layout on the page. Is that right? That you take these, That's right. these text balloons that you've cut out in the little ashtray next to your desk and, and place them on the, on the page before you know what you're going to draw. That's generally how I do it. I, I look at my script. I don't storyboard, so I'm a little unusual as far as, you know, what most uh, cartoonists do. I want I want something spontaneous to happen the day I'm actually going to draw. So I decide how much of the text I'm going to put on the page in front of me. Then I decide how I'm going to break that up, like literally what's going to go into what balloon, what's going to go into what caption. Then I draw out those word balloons or thoughts or those or those phrases. I on a piece of paper, I cut them out and then I, I place them on a page and I place them in a way that immediately I think, OK, the page can, the page can flow in this way because I, I, I'm always thinking of leading the reader's eye. What images can go here that are, that are going to fit with these words? You know, ultimately, I'm a kind of a words guy, sort of a words guy in a cartooning cartoonist body. Mm. Words are really important to me. Well, you come originally from the world of underground comics, so uh, influenced by people like Crumb. And in one interview, you were talking about how at the very beginning of doing Palestine, you were still, well, you were still drawing everyone with that sort of bigger caricatured style, but right. that you were getting some pushback both from Arabs and Jews uh, that had trouble with the way they were portrayed in comics journalism. And so that you moved pretty quickly to a more naturalistic, accurate style rather than the exaggerated cartoonish style, except for of yourself. Um, in your manifesto in journalism, you say, I try to draw people and objects as accurately as possible whenever possible to my mind. Anything that can be drawn accurately should be drawn accurately by which I mean a drawn thing must be easily recognizable as the real thing it is meant to represent. And then later you talk about how the subjectivity of an illustration and the accuracy of an illustration, as we've discussed, are not mutually exclusive but can coexist. I guess it made me wonder about the role of the imagination in, in Pain the Land. Obviously you weren't there when Paul Andrew was born in a moose skin boat or at the fish camp where his family set up by the river or, or at the Paulette case negotiations. And I wondered if in those moments, do you give yourself more artistic license, allow your imagination to, to have more leeway, or do you still feel sort of 
tethered to the importance of an accurate representation um, around the things you haven't seen? Well, accuracy matters to me in terms of what people said. That's where I, I really, um, you know, that matters, that matters the most is, is that the words have to be right. When you're drawing something, I try to be as informed as possible about what I'm drawing, in particular when it's something I haven't seen. So I'm relying on photo evidence. Sometimes I'm going back to the person to say, did it look like this? Um, as much as possible, I'm trying to be accurate, but there's just no way with drawing, you can be just precise. You, there is a subjective element to drawing. It is, it actually is subjective. The, the, the act of drawing is, is a subjective thing. And it became clear to me as I was, you know, undertaking comics journalism, that the accuracy of the quote and the subjective nature of the drawings just had to coexist. And I realized there was always going to be a tension between those two things. But that's kind of, to me, the, the tension is sort of the glory of, of comics in a way. So when, especially like in the, that first chapter with uh, Paul Andrew, I didn't see someone holding up a baby. He didn't tell me he was held up to the sky. He, even that would be a story that he was told ultimately. But mm -hmm. I'm trying to get into the spirit of what it must have felt like to be in a, a loving group of people where you had a place where you had a real sense of your self-worth and dignity. And so it's, it's a spirit that I'm trying to portray. Obviously, and that's a very subjective thing to do. But as far as like the dog sleds, the tents, all that, of course, I'm trying to draw them accurately, as accurately as I can without having seen the particular ones they were using. Given that a lot of these imagined images are also in engagement with archival photos as part of your scenario, I wanted to return to the contrast between photos and drawings once more. And also, again, to Molly Crabapple, because in her book, Brother of the Gun, she was recreating scenes from poorly shot, smuggled out photos from ISIS-occupied Syria, but also from her co-writer's memory of what he saw that the photos did not capture. So in a way, a similar scenario to the Paul Andrew where you're, you're, you're going with his memory and also with archival photos. And this is something that she said when she was talking about her book, Discordia. She said, Picasso's Guernica doesn't explain what a body looks like after a carpet bombing, but it does show the agony of war. When I drew, I could see nothing more clearly than the space between my art and its subject. And, and when, I was, when I was talking to her, I wondered about that space between art and subject, if, if the way the art didn't accurately portray the subject was also, in some cases, still reaching for a, a different type of truthfulness. And, and I, I was thinking at the time when I was talking to her about the writer-photographer Teju Cole, when he was asking the writer John Berger why he didn't do photography, and Berger said that for him to photograph a subject was to foreclose some part of what he could write about. Um, and I guess I wondered if, the, if somehow that space that Molly describes 
between her work and the world it depicts. If that's something that you, do you recognize yourself in that? Do you, do you recognize something about her description of that gap uh, as maybe being a, a productive creative gap? Well, yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's an insightful thing she says. I think what you're trying to go to, if you're trying to be true to your subjects, it, but knowing that you can never be like accurate in the photog photographic sense, is you're trying to get to an essence of something. So there are images I draw where just the way the, the, the page is designed for example, there's a, there's a scene where Paul Andrew, as a young child, is describing himself feeling like he's part of a circle. He's in a circle. And I draw aspects of Dene life uh, being conducted by his family around him. And he is actually in the center. And there's white space around that is kind of circular. That is trying to stay within the spirit of what he's saying and not just have sort of the words, just words on a page and showing his face or something. I mean, you're, you're trying to accentuate the essence of what you think he's trying to say. You're always going to be an interpreter, I think. Um, you're always going to be the one who's going to um, make decisions to, to get across what you're feeling. They're trying to tell you there's you're, you're an intermediary and your work is an intermediary in, in, in that whole process, but that's okay. I mean, that's, that's the artistic side of what I do. And in some ways that's part of the journalistic process. Cause I think sometimes essential truth can be told with art that can't really be told with photographs. In your, uh, Lannan Foundation talk, you you juxtapose a photograph and a painting, a photograph from the Vietnam War of the chief of national police executing a Viet Cong suspect on the streets of Saigon during the Tet Offensive, one that I think a lot of people know. And you juxtapose it with a painting by Goya called The Third of May, which shows Spanish civilians being executed by French soldiers. Could you Could you talk a little bit about what you were trying to show by by comparing and contrasting these two executions, one photographed and one painted? Well, that's an interesting, those are interesting cases because in Goya's case, when you're drawing, you're very intentional about what you're drawing and what you're trying to get across to the reader. And Goya, I think people might be familiar with the painting. The French soldiers, you don't see their faces. They seem to be melded together. They're pointing their guns and the the there are victims that you can see you see their faces in fact there's a guy with a white shirt who has his hands high up in the air and you're really struck by his face goya is arranging those elements very deliberately to give you an idea of sort of a faceless war machine executing defenseless people now in the case i think it's eddie adams who took the photograph you're referring to it's one of the most powerful images from the Vietnam War. He said that that was actually not, it didn't get across what was actually going on on that day. Apparently, uh, that Viet Cong suspect or other Viet Cong had executed some people in the place, uh, in that place, and 
this this thing was was done out of sort of the hot hot blooded anger. And Eddie Adams liked that general, had spent some time with him, and really thought he was a, a good man. And later even apologized to that general for the way that picture portrayed and basically you know ruined ruined his life. So his intent was there was no the intent the photograph had its own intent. When you're an artist, you you are deliberate and you try to bring the reader or the viewer to experience what you're trying to get across. It's much more intentional, obviously. One of the things that really like captured me in your talk with Spiegelman again was you talking about all that you were learning from your mother when you were trying to capture her experience as a child during the bombing of Malta by Germany and Italy. Could you, could you share a little bit of that with our listeners? Because I, I loved how, I mean, we've talked a lot about you writing from or drawing from um, photographs that both ones that you've taken and that are archival and the differences. But in this case, you're actually learning to draw through your mother drawing her own memories. Right. Yeah. Malta was badly bombed in World War II by the Italians and the Germans. And I'm from Malta. I was born there and, and my whole family's from Malta. And I grew up hearing stories from both my parents about the war and what they endured. Um, at some point, I wanted to do a, a, a comic book version of my mother's stories. And I think I was still I was living in Portland and she was living in Southern California at the time. And so we did this by a series of letters where I, I basically recalling the old stories would, would say, can you tell me about the time your friend was killed? Can you tell me about the time you were strafed by a Messerschmitt? Um, and she would write she would write a letter to me with all this information, just basically a, a story. And I had her words, which is what I used. But there were cases when I didn't know how to draw certain things. So she would say I would say. You know, you're talking about living in a in a um, uh, a shelter. Can you draw me what the shelter looked like? And my mm -hmm. mom is that it's through her I really uh, learned a love of drawing because she she knows how to draw, and she used to paint and uh, draw figures. And I would copy them. I'd say, you know, draw me a cowboy when I was little, and she'd draw me a cowboy. So that's where I kind of got my love of drawing and learned how to draw. And here she was, sort of drawing these little things to help me draw her story. So um, that was actually pretty much the first time I tried to reconstruct someone's story in comics form. Have you, um, returning back to Paying the Land, have you, is it too early for you to, to have know how it's being received up north? Like, have there been reviews and in Yellowknife's main newspaper or elsewhere, or have you heard anything from some of the people you encountered? I think that the, um, the Radio North, uh, CBC North, did a review, which I haven't listened to myself. I try not to listen to my reviews, frankly. You do? You avoid them? I, I mean, you know, there comes a period where I do, and then I stop doing it. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't really got... I, I just I sent some boxes of books up there, and as far as I know, they haven't been distributed yet. They've arrived, but they haven't been distributed. So I, it's still a bit too early to tell, I think. Yeah. If, if you read a lot of interviews of you over the decades, like I did in preparation for this, 
almost invariably when someone asks you what you're going to do next, you say not only that you're going to do something completely non-war related, but that you're specifically going to work on a project that you've once described as the gentleman's guide to the Rolling Stones and another time as, quote, a complete synthesis of Western thought and understanding told as a book about the Rolling Stones. And yet books come and go that are not this book. And yet again, here we are. So I was just curious, um, what are you going to be working on next? I'm working on my book about the Rolling Stones. <laughs> are you <laughs> I really? really I mean, you are. Uh, I, I have been working on this thing for years and years and years, writing a lot of things, and now I'm, I've been pulling them together. When I was working on the, the book about the Dene, um, I gave Saturday over to this project, this, the Rolling Stones project, uh, until the last eight months, and then I really had to sort of buckle down and just get the Dene book done. But um, I've been working on it for a long time, and I have I have close to 100 pages done now. Yeah. So this is not... This, I'm not pulling people's legs. I'm not yanking their chains. <laughs> this is probably the most important book that Western history will produce since St. Augustine's Confessions. Yeah, I'm That's sure. Like... I'm going for it. <laughs> well, I'm totally going for it. And I see it not just as a series of books. I mean, I see it as a series of books that I will probably continue after I'm dead. It's just going to keep going and going. And uh, I'm telling you, I'm having more fun doing this than I've ever had in my life. Well, uh, on that fun aspect, when you were talking with Spiegelman again, you you were you were mentioning how it's way easier and more natural for you to write in the crumb like style in in the style of your book Bump, for instance, that it doesn't come as naturally for you to write naturalistically and accurately. Is that part of the appeal of going back to? Uh, um, what I'm imagining is going back to the style you were doing when you were designing album covers or touring with rock bands um, with the Rolling Stones project? Well, definitely. I mean, I can't say about the writing, but the art itself, the way I've been drawing uh, my journalistic work has always been really difficult for me. I sweat every drawing. You know, there's a trick uh, cartoonists know to do, and that's to hold their art up to a mirror. And when you see the reverse image, you can see all the things that are wrong with it. I'm constantly doing that and constantly having to redraw arms, hands, faces, everything. Huh. It doesn't come easily to me to draw representationally. It just seems to be what needs to be done if I'm going to try to be try to do journalism in comics form. So to me, it's a tremendous relief to draw um, as my hand wants to draw, which is in the old underground way um, where things are much more rubbery, where things are much more exaggerated and I'm not, you know, I'm distortion doesn't matter that if I distort a face, it's not a problem for me. I'm actually intentionally distorting faces. You can't, you can't really get away with that in yeah. comics journalism. So yeah, that, that, that's part of the fun is just allowing myself to be that seven year old again, drawing whatever I want to draw. Well, one last skeptical question, since this has always been the next book. You've also mentioned that you were working on a book about a riot that happened in India. Um, is that something that's also on the table that you're working on at the moment, too? It's on the table. Let's just say I should be working on it. It's, a, it's yeah. an important story. Um, I have to, 
to balance what I think is important to do, which I, and I do think that book on the Indian riot needs to be done with what I feel I can do right now. And I think I'm a little worn down by my journalistic work over, over time. Yes. So, um, it's been important for me to, to do that. That's the stones book is kind of a relief and will give me maybe the energy to do the, um, the riot book, which has already started. I already have some pages drawn. It won't be particularly long. I just have to buckle down and spend a year and a half doing it and I'll get to it. I will get to it. I think it's an important book. Well, thank you for spending the time with, with me today, Joe. It's a great pleasure, David. We are talking today with Joe Sacco, the author of Paying the Land from Metropolitan Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you like what you've heard and are interested in supporting the show, you can find out about the benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. From bonus audio like Joe Sacco reading and discussing Jean-Jacques Rousseau or Richard Powers reading W.S. Merwin or Therese Marie Myatt reading her essay, Native Women Brilliance, to emails full of further resources to explore with each episode, to signed copies of Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 advanced copies of upcoming Tin House books months before they are available to the general public. Again, this and much more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or... For those where it makes more sense to make a one-time contribution to this endeavor, you can do so at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yeshwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog and Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.